theyeshiva.net. Welcome, everybody. You can see from my face how, sorry about the banging, how excited I am about today's guest and this interview. Uh, I'm going to be welcoming Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson just in a moment. And we're going to be talking about something really amazing and really deep and applying to every human being in these times. So stay tuned for that. And without further ado, let me officially introduce to you. Some of you know him. If you are connected to the Torah world, you can hardly help but know of him and maybe know a lot of him. If you are not, as many people here are not, then allow me to introduce you. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, or more commonly known as Y.Y. Jacobson, easier to say, is one of the most (laughs) sought-after speakers in the Jewish world today. He lectures to both Jewish and non-Jewish audiences and serves as teacher and mentor to thousands of people across the globe. He's considered to be one of the most successful, passionate, and I want to add compassionate, and mesmerizing communicators of Torah today, calling his ideas from the entire spectrum of Torah thought and making them relevant to contemporary audiences of all backgrounds. And I have to say, to the call of the hour, which we'll get into soon, Rabbi YY was the first rabbi ever to be invited by the Pentagon to deliver the religious keynote to the U.S. military chief of chaplains and the NSA. He's also the founder and dean of theyeshiva.net. That's the yeshiva, T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A.net. Link also beneath this video. Rabbi Jacobson is also the author of A Tale of Two Souls, which is an extensive audio series on the teachings of the premier classical text of Chabad Hasidus, known as the Tanya, which has influenced Torah thought for hundreds of years now, deeply influenced. He's written more than a thousand articles on diverse themes of Jewish thought, including biblical and Talmudic studies, Jewish law, Kabbalah and Hasidism, Jewish history, psychology, philosophy, education, relationships, a big topic for Rabbi Waiwai and all of us, Israel and current events. Over the past 15 years, Rabbi Jacobson has traveled to hundreds of communities, schools, and universities around the globe, educating and inspiring people of all backgrounds with the majestic depth of Torah. And I have to smile as I say that because... I didn't in my younger years, I knew what Torah was. I grew up Jewish, but I didn't know what it was at all. And especially not the mystical Torah. And um, it is an infinite wellspring of majesty and depth and richness and healing and intimacy with self and God and so much more. Anyway, that said, welcome. And thank you so much, Rabbi YY, for being with us today. Thank you for your gracious introduction, and it's my pleasure and honor. Thank you. Okay, so I think maybe we should just start because there are people from all different backgrounds, I'm sure some of whom probably haven't heard the word Torah even. So if you can just start with a brief explanation of why that is, and even more importantly, why anyone should care, and then we'll take it from there. Right. So the word Torah is a Hebrew word, starting from the beginning, and it actually means a manual, or a lesson, or instruction. And it's basically the literature, I would say, of Jewish wisdom, communicated, transcribed, taught over the last 4,000 years. From Abraham, the first Jew, Abraham and Moses, all the way to this very day. Torah includes thousands and thousands of books. Most famous would, of course, be the Hebrew Bible the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the prophets and the writings, but it also includes the entire body of Judaic literature, Jewish law and Jewish history, Jewish philosophy and Jewish theology, Jewish mysticism and Jewish spirituality. 
And the Jewish people have always seen it as a blueprint, a divine blueprint for life. Today we have Waze or Google Maps to help us navigate our journeys. You remember Shift for the Days before Waze and when you had to get from somewhere to somewhere else. You remember oh you had to write down instructions and inevitably... Open a unless, map. <laughs> <laughs> inevitably you got lost. Today it's a blessing. Yeah. You know, if that's true about a journey on a physical highway, imagine the journey of life, which is so intricate and so complex and so nuanced and often filled with pain and filled with tragedy and filled with challenge and difficulties, internal and external. So yeah. the primary function of Torah, the body of Jewish wisdom, is to provide a manual, a blueprint of how do I navigate, how do we navigate our lives as individuals and as part of a collective. So you're saying navigate, and it's beautifully explained, but when you say navigate, the underlying assumption is you're starting someplace and you're going someplace. So where are we going? Where are we starting? Where are we going? And where are we on that? On that nav- where are we, Waze? Show me the overview. Beautiful, beautiful question. So one of the foundational premises of Torah, of, of Jewish mystical spirituality, is that we are all conceived in oneness. We were all, we are all conceived in undifferentiated oneness. Imagine the story of a child, every child. Every child begins as a fetus in the womb of its mother. And even before that, it begins in a state of undifferentiated oneness with the father's seed and the mother's egg. And even as it develops in the mother's womb, there's still undifferentiated oneness, complete connection, complete intimacy. Birth is a process of independence, which begins with separateness. That separateness evolves over the years until we become full-fledged adults and the birds soar from the nest. But the key is not to forget that essentially we come from that place of oneness. And that's our journey. Our journey is back towards oneness. But what does that actually look like? You know, and, and I have to say that um, a lot of the people who are listening are no doubt from what we call the consciousness space, the healing space, you know, there's a rise in, in general human, let's say consciousness, intuition, searching, spiritual searching. This is actually prophecy, right? That it will be part of this era. But, um, but, but when people say oneness, I often feel like it's kind of a general idea. It's a definitely foundational core. It is the core idea if there's such a thing, but what does that actually look like? And how does that show up? in the human process, in this navigational journey or metamorphosis? What is it? What is the world supposed to look like? What are we supposed to look like? I'm going to use the terminology of Judaism or what we call Torah to answer that question. Essentially, the miracle of creation, the miracle of this world is out of one, many. In Jewish mysticism, Pre-creation consciousness is a consciousness where there's oneness, but it's a completely undefined infinity. Judaism, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, doesn't use the word God. It uses the word Ein Saif. Ein Saif in Hebrew means infinity, which means reality that is completely one and not defined, because if it's defined, it's already finite. It's undefined, and therefore it's all-encompassing. From a Jewish perspective, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as is divine infinity. 
So essentially, creation was the miracle that from oneness came diversity, came many. In a pre-creation consciousness, there's no thou and I. There's absolutely no separateness. There's no distinct identity. So we don't Everything, exist. We, we also don't exist as separate. We don't exist as separate beings. There's no ego. There's no sense of separateness. Existence, the creation from a Jewish perspective, is the ability and the need for every soul, every creature, to face the trauma of separateness, like that moment of birth when the fetus emerges or is extracted from the womb of its mother. And for the first time, it has to face a sense of separateness. But the ultimate objective is not separation. The objective is to reveal the oneness within the diversity, to reveal that each and every single one of us is a fragment of the divine. And each of us constitutes an indispensable note in the cosmic symphony. And only together can we create the full song, the full ballad, the full symphonic beauty of the universe. So each and every creature has its unique music to play, distinct, individual. My unique DNA sequence is the imprint of God on my personality, which is different than yours. We share, I share 50% of my DNA with a banana, 99% of my (laughs) DNA with a chimpanzee. So what really makes the difference between me and the banana or me and the chimp or me and my brother and my sister who really share DNA? And the answer is that unique individual alteration from a Jewish perspective is the divine imprint on you, a unique imprint that makes me, me, and you, you. The Talmud says an astounding statement. Every person is obliged to say every day, for me, the universe was created. Now, it sounds like crazy narcissism. Really? I'll tell my wife the world was created for me, and she'll say the world was created for me. It's a great way of living, a great way for relationships. What it really means is, what the Talmud is saying is, that there's something at stake in your life that the whole world needs. The day you were born is the day when the creator declared that the world is incomplete without your contribution, without your light. So when each and every one of us brings to our life our unique divine light that flows through my consciousness, like it flows through your consciousness, together we create a much deeper unity than the unity of pre-creation. The unity of pre-creation was just undifferentiated oneness. The unity we can create today, and I think we're called on to create today, and that the world is inviting us towards, is a unity that does not ignore diversity. On the contrary, it's created from diversity, from our differences, from our distinctiveness, from the fact that I can create space for you and you can create space for me. We create a much deeper consciousness that synthesizes the infinite and the finite, the oneness and the diversity, the undifferentiated, undefined infinity, together with every single individual aspect of every single creature in our planet and in our cosmos. Yeah, I'm actually hearing this on kind of a three di- a multi-dimensional way, feeling it in a multi-dimensional way. Like, <laughs> it's quite multi-dimensional. Right, but I don't, you know, it's, yeah, no, of course, obviously, way more than the mind can encompass. But I, it, sometimes I think about the example of uh, the analogy of, the, of a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, you know, how annoying it is, like it has 5,000 pieces, and each piece 
you know, you have to take it out of the box. Half the pieces are upside down. They're all in the wrong order. You have to have a big space, <laughs> spread them out, figure out where I, where I start, where do two pieces fit together? And then the only way you can actually create, recreate the puzzle is through the picture on the top of the box, which seems, I sometimes think of the Torah as that, like that general, you know. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful way of saying it. But Showing also, you the bigger picture. But it's obviously multidimensional. And the destination. And the destination. Yeah, right. But it's so annoying. What is more annoying than doing 4,999 pieces and then you're missing the last piece? Great it's just, question. It's, Excellent. It's what you're saying, right? That annoying and frustrating and uh, how can it even be done? There's a beautiful line in the Ethics of the Fathers, which is one of the very famous tractates in Jewish wisdom. It's known as the Ethics of the Fathers. It was written around uh, 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago. And there's a line over there in Hebrew. It's, Which, to translate, you do not have to complete the work, but that should not be an excuse not to begin your journey. You know, it's been said by greater and wiser than I that perfection is the enemy of progress. When I look at my life and I say, you know, it's my responsibility to put the entire puzzle back together, then it seems like such a daunting task. And often the result is just resignation or cynicism or despair. The Jewish perspective is you never know the impact of an individual and you'll never appreciate the power of one person's light. There's a beautiful old story that they say that illustrates this. There was once a, a young girl standing at a beach in California, and as the tide was retreating, the ocean was spitting out all of these starfish, and she felt bad for all the dying starfish. So she would pick up the starfish and throw them back into the water to give them back life. And one old cynic looked at her and said, you foolish little girl, this beach stretches for dozens of miles. Even if you stand here 10 hours a day, and you throw in starfish by starfish, you're not making any difference. You're not having an impact. There are millions of them stranded here. And the girl looks at him as she picks up one fish, and as she throws it back in the water, she said, for this one, I made all the difference. And that, I think, is a very fundamental Jewish idea. You know, there is that one person, that one starfish, that one young man, that one young woman, for whom I can make all the difference. And when I make all the difference for that person, that makes a very, very powerful impact. I also want to remind all of us that the First World War, the First World War, which used to be called the Great War before the Second World War, that broke out in 1914, summer 1914. And as a result of the First World War and the terms with which Germany was allowed to continue functioning as a nation at the end of the war, ultimately led to the Second World War. These are the two wars that changed history completely. And how did the First World War began, begin? Began from a 19-year-old, Gabriella Princip, a 19-year-old kid who pulled the trigger and murdered the ear and his wife of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that pulling of the trigger is literally what sparked the First World War, which not only on its own had an unbelievable impact, a devastating one, but literally changed everything, not only for the Jewish people, for the entire map, for the entire globe. Judaism says, never ever underestimate the incredible influence and impact of an individual soul in the positive. 
So when I, when I work on recreating that puzzle, even with my own tools and in my own limited way, Maimonides makes a statement. Maimonides was one of the greatest Jewish thinkers. He lived in the 12th century, considered one of the greatest Jewish philosophers and also world philosophers in history. And he writes a line. He says, from a Jewish perspective, you should always view yourself and the world as a scale, as a balanced scale. And he says, if I do one mitzvah, which is one good deed, one act of kindness, of love, of compassion, imagine that that may tip the scale and change the whole world. Now, sometimes I would read it and think, you know, it may be a little exaggerated, it may be a little dramatic, but then when I realized that it took one simple man in China, in Wuhan, to sneeze, just to sneeze, and a few months later, 7.7 billion people were brought to their knees with the sweeping of the coronavirus all over the world. I understand what he means. The impact of a person. If it's true in the negative, it's even more true in the positive. So our attitude should never be, I don't think, you know, who am I? I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. <laughs> There's a big puzzle. It's way beyond me. Yeah. Let me just retreat into my little cocoon. Our attitude should be much wiser and much more historically accurate. And that is, you are an ambassador of infinity. You are an ambassador of divine energy. And just like atomic energy, it's not about quantity. If you can tune in to your deepest nuclear levels of energy, the impact is beyond anybody's imagination. Is that why I was going to ask you before, but you might have just answered it. But is that why I was going to ask you, why is it that the, that a positive, if, ne, if one person can change the world for the negative, why is it so much so more so for the positive? I think you may have answered it, but if you want to just explain that a little bit more, like what is the, why is the power for the positive greater than the power for the yeah, negative? Because you I feel helpless. It's a great, not true. It's a, it's a great question, and it brings us to a much larger question. Which force is more powerful in my life? The forces of the positive and the negative. Sometimes it seems that negativity has so much more power. The powers of depression, the powers of hatred, alienation, disassociation, disconnection. They just come so easy and so fast. Yeah. You know, I'm in a bad mood. I'm in an angry mood. I'm frustrated. I'm hateful. I'm angry. I'm vengeful. You know, positivity are like, you know, stories that we tell ourselves and more like, you know, uh, poetic dreams and nice songs. But the truth is, it's the other way around. It's the other way around. Because you see all negativity, essentially, and this we have to understand, all negativity essentially lives because of concealment. It's basically thriving of blockages. And anything that lives only because truth is concealed has a limited life term because the moment is revelation, it dissipates. It ceases to be. If I can give a very simple illustration, if I have a company or I have a business that's running a Ponzi scheme, completely illegal transactions and so forth, its entire power is that nobody sees the truth. The books are closed. Yeah. So it may be very tempting. I mean, we all know, you know, about Madoff's Panzai scheme and other schemes. But the moment truth comes out, it's all over. It's gone. Take the Soviet Union. Take communism. For 70 years, it cast its fearlessness over the world, like Putin is doing today, right? And then one day, 1990, 
It just died without a single shot fired. No other revolution in history was the bloodless. Union. Yeah, it's true. It was bloodless. What happened was because it was all based on lie. It was all based on lies. The cover-ups were so thick and so dense, as Churchill once said, that one day it just platzed. Platzed is a Yiddish word, which means it just, it just melted away into thin air. The power of negativity could be very, very powerful and fearsome in our own lives and in the world. But ultimately, it's skin deep because it doesn't have reality to back it up. Because when reality emerges, there is oneness, there is love, there's compassion. When reality emerges, we're full of love, we're full of light, we're full of joy, we're full of possibility. Now, reality doesn't always emerge. We are also filled with blockages. I have traumas that block me. I have fears and insecurities and anxiety and stress and unresolved stuff that block me. But they're all based on blockages. And therefore, I always have to remember that the power of love and positivity will always defeat hate and negativity because one is rooted in truth and authenticity and the other one gleans its power from blockages and cover-ups. Like clouds, like when you go rising up through the right. from a cloudy day in a plane and all of a sudden it's, it's really, really bright. Right. right. And we all know in our own lives, I may be living with a lot of blockages and it's eclipsing my light. Yeah. And it's very easy to fall prey to those blockages. But if I dig a little deeper and if I excavate my inner depth, then ultimately the darkness vanishes in the presence of light. You know, you can have the darkest of room of rooms and you light a candle yeah. and the light expels the darkness. You don't have to battle it. You don't have to get into a debate with it. You just have to light a flame of truth in a house of lies and the lies just dissipate. And that's our role in this world. Our role is with each one of us is a candle. The book of Proverbs says, the soul of a human being is the flame of God, which means each and every one of us is a candle. But a candle could sometimes remain unlit. You have the candle itself, you have the wick, you have the wax, I have the oil, I have the candelabra, but then I have to ignite the flame. And when I ignite that flame of warmth, of compassion, of truth, the darkness dissipates. Wow, there's a lot here. Um, I want to ask you a few things at at the same time. Um, So let me just sort through for a second. I want to know, first of all, you you describe the world, the creation of the world, the the reality of the world as undifferentiated, infinite oneness, ain't so. And then you described how that's concealed in order for individuals to emerge. So that what you're saying makes it sound like even this that God is concealed is skin deep, not just God is, and I want to lead into that soon. We want to talk about God because people have all kinds of preconceptions and conceptions, and it's so important to, to really look at those and bust through. But first I want to ask you, like, is, does it, are we in a place where it's skin deep? Because it seems like, I mean, creation has been going on for a long time. Concealment of, of divinity has been going on for a long time. Suffering has been going on for a long time. Lies have been going on for a long time. Why does it? Why would you say that it's skin deep? And the other question that I, that goes with that is, how does a person bust away those clouds, or bust away that darkness, or turn on the light? Like when you counsel people, what are the, some of the core things that you suggest? 
that make that difference. Right. So one way of looking at it is when I say skin deep, I don't mean that it's not powerful or scary or has not wreaked havoc. What I mean skin deep is that ultimately it will not prevail. You know, the pharaohs of the world, the Hamans of the world, the Tituses of the world, the Stalins of the world, the Hitlers of the world have wreaked havoc. And we, the Jewish people, know this, I think, better than any other nation. The amount of bloodshed and violence and suffering. And yet, when you look four or five thousand years later, it's amazing. In the Bible, there's a scene where God speaks to Abraham, the first Jew. And he says, I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you will be cursed, and all the nations of the world will be blessed by you. And when you read that verse and you think about the fact Abraham was an individual person who commanded no military, owned no empire, had very little resources, didn't even have a child to continue his legacy. And yet, 4,000 years later, half of humanity considers themselves spiritual ears of Abraham. And the ideas of Abraham, monotheism, oneness, the search for the laws of nature, science, today have completely redefined the world. And what that means to what that means and what it shows us is that ultimately reality prevails. That's its nature. Reality comes from the word real. So we, we as the Jewish people, I think, are living witnesses to the fact that yes, history has been challenging. History has been difficult. And there's no denying that. And there is so much pain. There was so much pain. And so much evil and darkness have often prevailed in the lives of individuals and in the lives of nations and cultures. And we still watch so much injustice, so much pain, so much abuse, so much tragedy. The question we have to ask ourselves is, they say there are three types of people. There are those who make things happen, there are those who watch things happen, and there are those who want to know what happened. (laughs) As Jews, our mission is not to watch things happen and not to ask what happened, but to make things happen. Now you say as Jews, would you include everybody listening here? There are plenty of people listening here who are not Jewish. I would include every single person. The reason I connect this to the Jewish people is, because I think historically the Jewish people have seen themselves as identified with a mission to be able to share with humanity some of these fundamental truths about every person's responsibility, non-Jew and Jew alike, people of every race and every culture and every religion and every tribe. You know, the Torah, Judaism, calls the Jews the chosen people. And somebody once asked you, what does that mean? What are we chosen for? Chosen for benefits? (laughs) chosen to be persecuted? And I said, the answer is, we were chosen to teach every person that he or she was chosen. We were chosen to teach every person that he or she was chosen, that you're not a random mutation. You're not just a consequential, valueless, meaningless, insignificant blimp on the surface of infinity who will one day just become fodder of the worms. No, you were conceived in love. And you, each and every person, constitutes an indispensable note in the cosmic divine symphony. So when we say evil is skin deep, it doesn't mean it's not powerful. What it does mean is we should never take our eyes off the target and know that the ultimate story of history, the arc of history, 
is bent towards creating more harmony and more oneness. And there's a lot of good that we also have to celebrate. You know, I said yesterday at a lecture that in the last few years, for the first time in history, more people died from drinking Coca-Cola than from starvation. For most of history, you woke up in the morning and you did not know if you're going to die from one of three things, famine, a plague, infectious diseases, or violence. Today, not in all of the world, but most, much of the world, we wake up in the morning and we're not concerned that we're going to die that day from violence or from hunger or from an infectious disease. This does not take away the many tragedies and loss of life. We have to understand we have to understand that for thousands of years, things were very, very different. And there's a reason. There's, the world is developing. There is a progress. There is progress. The consciousness of oneness is becoming more and more pervasive. We speak to people around the world and you see the openness, the openness for people to realize that we want to be in a space of harmony. We want to become conduits of compassion. We want to become conduits of love. So, we should never be naive and not live in la-la land and ignore injustice and ignore crime and ignore toxicity and ignore hatred and bloodshed. On the contrary, our responsibility is to stand up to injustice with dignity, with conviction, and with potency. But on the other hand, it's our equal responsibility to remember that our role is not to become cynical or to surrender to despair, but rather to help repair the world. That's why each and every single one of us is here. You ask a question about how I would guide people to help remove our blockages. That was your second question. And I think, you know, every person's journey is extremely individual, but there's a few things I would say that I think are pretty generic. The first element is we need a real, every person needs a support system. You need to connect to people. You need to be connected. In the Hebrew Bible, the first thing that the Torah, the Hebrew Bible says is not good. The Torah, the Bible describes how God creates the world. And every day he says, everything is so good and beautiful. And then there's the first scene where God says something is not good. And you wonder what will that be? Adultery, idolatry, murder, sin? No. The first thing the Hebrew Bible, God says, is not good. Lo tov hayota adam levada. It's not good for the human being, for Adam, for a human being to be alone. As we know today in research, the antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. The first thing we all need is attachment. We all need connection. It's not just because of evolutionary psychology that historically we have been, you know, hunters and gatherers, and therefore, as we foraged, we needed the support of the group. From a Jewish perspective, it's much deeper. It's because we, are, we were conceived in a space of oneness, undifferentiated oneness. We're really attached to each other. We are destined to be attached to each other. So the first element of healing is we need support. We need people who believe in us. 
We need people who are connected to us. We have to reach out and reach in and connect to people. We need that. We need this somatic attachment. We need spiritual attachment. We need emotional attachment. We need psychological attachment. So that's the first thing I would encourage. You want feedback from people. You want to connect to people. And it's really, this may be a very difficult step for many of us, especially those of us who stop trusting. And so many of us stopped trusting. We were forced to stop trusting. So that's the first thing that's really applicable. We need those relationships, one, two, three relationships with another person, with other people, with groups who can help us on this journey to remove blockages. I can't do this myself. You can't do this yourself. Mm-hmm. On Adam, we cannot do this alone. As smart as I am, as brilliant as a person may be, and as wonderful as you may be, that's number one. Number two, I really need to be able to open myself up to all of the opportunities that there are. We live today in an amazing time. There's so much opportunities and methods of healing, various models of therapy, various models of treatment. Open yourself up to it. You know, speak to somebody who's in the know. Learn about it. There are quite a few of those presenting in the summit. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's incredible. There's so many different. And at the end of the day, I don't know that it's one model or another model that wins color war. I'm not sure about that. I think it's more the fact that there is connection, there is attachment, there is support, there is tuning into what's going on that allows us to open ourselves up. And, and also, finally, yeah. Well, I just wanted to reflect back and ask you, isn't it true that when, so, when somebody, like you're saying, it's not necessarily the modality, but it's this connection. But I'm wondering if it's also, I'm thinking that it's also the fact that when someone when you go to someone and they support you, they see your potential. They don't see your despair as the reality. They see what you're describing. Hundred percent. hundred percent. Now you, you, you have to be connected to people who know how to connect. Uh, I yeah. was the other day. I did a weekend with two thousand people in Florida who are in recovery, active recovery from sex addiction, uh, drug addiction, and other forms of addiction, alcoholism, etc. And uh, just, I got a, just the middle of one of the lectures, God graced me with this line. I told them, I said, listen, my friends, you know, if I have not worked out at all my own crap, when I encounter your trauma, your trauma triggers my trauma. And then my trauma gets entangled with your trauma. And instead of helping you, I sometimes become a force that actually is unhelpful. But if I do work out at least somewhat my own toxicity, my own issues, then your trauma will trigger my empathy rather than my own trauma. And that's the key. Because sometimes I can go to a therapist or I can go to a rabbi, I can go to an imam, I can go to a priest, or I can go to a friend, or I can go to somebody... But if they or I have not really worked out my own issues, if I'm in denial, if I'm still stuck in my own traumas, I'm not judging you. But then what often happens is I can't really be here for you because I'm just trying to survive. (laughs) So I'm responding to your trauma by just trying to cope myself. Yeah. Instead of being an agent of healing, I sometimes become an agent of destruction, even if not deliberately. So it's so important for each and every one of us to be able to have the courage, and it takes courage, to really look into myself and to have the people who will help me do that and to really ask myself not to heal. I don't think we can all heal in one day, but at least to be aware, 
the moment I'm aware of my blockages, the moment my brother once told me that somebody came to him for advice. So my brother says to him, my friend, is it possible that you have a blind spot? He says, yes, of course I have a blind spot, but I know what it is. <laughs> right? So <laughs> the moment I know what my blind spot is, you know, I may be a little dangerous. So it's so important for us to be able to open ourselves up. And it's a very humbling process. It's a very humbling process. But there's so much love and opportunity out there that I don't think any one of us is excluded today from the responsibility to be able to confront my, uh, you know, to confront my issues and for each of us to confront our issues. I think you could say when a person gets triggered by someone else, that is a pointer to a blind spot, if we allow it to be. Oh, of course, of course. And the call of the hour is curiosity, you know. I always tell parents when your children say something to you and you're really triggered before responding, can you be curious? When your spouse says something to you and you want to implode or explode or run away for three months emotionally, can you really remain present and be curious and ask yourself what just happened? Because that will be a portal, a vista to greatness. You will will touch something that's been hidden for many years and there are deep sparks. There are deep sparks of leadership and of greatness that are hidden there. And that's called a soft spot. So, you know, pursue it. Don't run away from it. This was an opportunity. And from that perspective, Jewish mysticism says every obstacle or what we call today trigger, every trigger is really a boulder that can be transformed into a stepping stone towards incredible, profound depth, awareness, and spiritual greatness. And we must seize those moments. So those moments that are making you crazy <laughs> and really are bothering you, don't run from them. Th- those are good. Those are good places. There's a lot, of, a lot of hidden treasures there. Yeah, it's it's a it's a practice to be able to um, to to use that opportunity and to understand that you know sometimes I can do it. Now I didn't used to be able to. Sometimes I can say, "Wait, I'm really triggered. What's going on?" Hmm, what's the next lesson? What's the next step? That's not when I'm really, really triggered. And it takes a lot more time and, you know, processing and work. So it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of inner work. And it also takes something else. And I think this is a key fundamental teaching of Jewish spirituality that is, I think, so important for all of humanity. It's always recognizing that your core is never damaged. Your core mm-hmm. To use Jewish Torah language, your core is divine. Your core is godly. Your core is filled with potential and infinite potential. No abuse, no dysfunctional home or family, no mental illness, no trauma, no mood disorder, no personality disorder. And nothing in the world can snuff out your core goodness and wholesomeness. Your core goodness and wholesomeness may be in exile. It may be hidden away. Winston Churchill once said, in a time of war, truth is so precious. We protect it with bodyguards of lies. <laughs> Come back to our blockages. But at your core, your core I is never, ever, ever damaged. When I can really be cognizant of that, 
So then that eye can observe all the triggers almost as an outsider who observes it and watches it. And even though it's hard, it's gripping me, it's overwhelming me. I want to scream. I want to break the window. I want to run. I want to freeze, fight, flight, whatever my reaction is. I could always remember that there's an eye observing all those triggers and I can then watch my inner child playing in that sandbox, being terrorized in that sandbox and ask myself what just happened and begin a journey towards so much more awareness. I think it was Viktor Frankl who once said, between stimuli and response, there is a tiny empty space. And it's in that space where all human freedom lives. So, you know, you may say something to me. That was a stimuli that just came into my brain. And I'm triggered. (laughs) And I'm ready to respond or react. But in between the stimuli and the reaction, there's a tiny little space where freedom lives. That tiny, tiny little space. You know, and if I can go into that space, if I can cultivate that space, and I can watch what is happening to me, I can be curious with compassion with love, with sensitivity, not with judgment. Because when I do it with judgment and criticism, I'm never going to get anywhere. It's just going to go back into hiding. But when I can do it with compassion, it will almost open, sometimes open itself up to me. And slowly there is this journey towards, towards inner redemptiveness. Right. This is a core teaching in Jewish spirituality, literally a core teaching. And it's helpful to know that, to know that your goodness could never, ever be compromised that your mental challenges, whatever they may be, are part of your journey. They never define you completely. And what is the purpose? I think you've spoken to it a bit, but um, how would you sum up what is the purpose of the infinite loving God giving these kinds of challenges to people? And I'm sure you've answered that question and asked that question. That's... uh, you know, that's one of the greatest questions. That's one of the greatest questions that we all confront. And I don't know that our brains can intellectually give a satisfying answer to this. Certainly, I cannot give that answer to somebody else. I can maybe give that answer to myself, and I can hold somebody else and serve as an empathetic witness to help them on that journey. But I would say two points that I have found in my own life and that people have shared with me as I served as an anchor for them in their own journeys. Number one, I told this to somebody the other day. Um, This person opened up to me and told me how, you know, as a child they were molested for five years and raped. And when he finally, when this boy had the courage to come to his father, all his father said was, I don't believe you. And he told me that that was worse than the five years of rape because the five years of rape were done by some sick pedophile. But this was his father who didn't even give him the dignity of of believing. And he turns to me and he said these words. He said, Rabbi, why, why? He says, you want me to believe that God exists after this experience? Maybe if you could tell me why, tell me why it happened to me. I looked at him, I shed a tear because it was very sad to hear this from a person, obviously. And then I said to him, I said, I'll never know why. I will never know why. I don't know that anybody could know why. 
But I just want to tell you something I feel. I feel. And that is, I don't think you can approach your tragedy, your experience, with an intellectual question, seeking an intellectual answer. Almost like it was a mathematical equation. Why? Because. Right. I think it would be far deeper if instead of asking why, you'll ask another question. And that is, how can you turn your experience into a mission statement? I don't know that any normal person can answer why. Why? Why would a child like this have to go through this? And if God exists and God is compassionate, why, we, why would he allow this to happen in this world? I don't know. I really don't know. I cannot wrap my brain around it. But I told this boy, I said, but I want to now ask you a question. And that is, if you had a choice, and your choice is to look at your tragedy and say, I am messed up. This world is an evil, sadistic, barbaric place, and I am a victim of it. And that's the end of my story. I'll just live the best life possible. Okay. I can't judge that reaction. I can't. Never. But I said, I want to ask you, would it be possible for you to muster the courage and respond differently and say as follows, yes, this happened to me. It's devastating. I need a lot of grief work and I need a lot of help. And you know what? Till my last breath, I will have been affected by this. No question. A certain part of my childhood was robbed. And because of that, I'm going to ask, how can I take that and turn it into the most defining, powerful mission statement of my life? Because I told them, the way you understand pain, nobody does. And the way you could look into the eyes of another person who was abused, nobody can. And the way you can offer empathy and love and compassion, nobody can. And the way you can become a leader in our society, fighting injustice and not allowing criminals to get away with cover-ups, nobody can do it like you. So I wonder if you can take all this horrible, horrible darkness that you experienced and turn it into the most powerful, defining mission statement of your life. Because if you can, I said, then our children will be living in a much better world because of your leadership. And I have to tell you, he stood up. He gave me a long hug. We were both crying. And he told me two things. He said, thank you for not answering the question why. And thank you for believing that I can still have a defining mission statement. And I have found in my experience of counseling people and talking to people that to answer the question why is sometimes very unwise and often cruel and stupid, first of all, because I don't know. And even if I would know, intellectual answers don't deal with pain. (laughs) If we're learning philosophy, if we're learning math, if we're learning physics, we all cherish the intellect and we cherish our analytical ability and our prefrontal cortex capacity. (laughs) No question. And if you're a Jewish rabbi learning Talmud, the intellectual creativity of the mind is a blessing. When we're talking about pain, when we're talking about raw pain, and somebody says, you know, why did this happen to me? Why did my father die when I was a child? Why did my mother die? Why am I going through this illness? Why did I lose this loved, beloved one? 
I think our job in this world is not to give explanations. First of all, because we don't know. And even if we would, it's usually irrelevant. Our job is really to be there for people, to be there for people. Now, I would just add that sometimes, and I think a person has to be able to say this to themselves. I know in my life, some of my struggles, my personal struggles, I would have never asked for them. And I would not wish them on anybody that I love or anybody else. And yet I also know that there are certain places I have reached in my own internal soul that I could have never reached without this. Absolutely true. Does it justify it? Does it rationalize it? Does it explain it? I don't think so. I think we're talking about a different realm of reality. Sometimes a human being has a very, very deep light. And in order for them to discover it and to own it, they have to be able to work very hard. (laughs) And they have to sift through a lot of debris and a lot of... (laughs) A lot of... uh, In Yiddish, we have a word, meshagas, which means a lot of complicated stuff in order to be able to discover that light and own that light. Sure, God could have just given me that light and say, Rabbi, why, why? Light up the world. It would never be mine. I would not own it. I would just be a robot. In this world... Go ahead. In this world, we are called to become the authors of our own biographies. Mm. It's one of the most beautiful teachings of Judaism. Sometimes we see religion as being very passive. It's almost, you know, just be an obedient slave of the Lord, just do what he wants. But in Judaism, there is a beautiful expression. It's an expression in the Talmud. God wants you to be his partner in the work of repairing the world. A partner is not passive. If I bring in a partner in my company, 50-50, I don't want the partner to be an obedient passive bystander. I want the partner to come in with his or her full creativity. Bring something to the table. Yeah. Bring something to the table that I can't bring. I can't bring. So this is a very gearing idea in the Talmud. God was looking for a partner. And the question is, what can't he bring to the table? What can't he bring to the table? I look for a partner because he either has the money to invest or he has the wisdom to manage or to strategize. That's why I bring in a partner. If not, I don't need a partner. I want the revenue for myself. So the Talmud says God was looking for a partner in the work of healing the world. This means that there's something the partner brings to the table. And what is that? And the answer is, it's human vulnerability. It's human vulnerability. That's what we bring to the table. We bring to the table the authenticity, the non-judgmentalism, the compassion, the striving for growth that comes because of our deficiencies, because of our imperfections. As we go on our journey, we can then discover something from within that becomes ours through our work, through our initiative, through our creativity. And if you could look at your challenges as an invitation to go on a deeper journey, your challenges are transformed into opportunities. It doesn't mean they're not hard. It doesn't mean you don't need to do a lot, a lot of grief work. It doesn't mean you don't need to work through a lot of pain. 
And it doesn't mean you wish it would happen. It would have happened. It doesn't mean you become just this, you know, zombie, zombie. You know, the other day, and I know I'm bringing up something very personal that you are unfortunately very well aware of. I was visited by parents who lost a child. And um, they lost a child in a car accident, a 16-year-old boy. And the father said something fascinating to me. It was such an interesting question. I didn't expect it. He said to me, you know, as I was sitting Shiva in Judaism, there's a ritual that after we lose a loved one, we sit for seven days in our home and we do nothing. (laughs) We don't go to work. We don't sit on our emails. We just are visited by people who come to talk and console and tell stories and just offer emotional support. It's a psychologically brilliant uh, law within Judaism. For seven days, you don't leave the house. You don't go to work. You just sit and people just come and visit. I remember how amazing it was, sadly amazing. It was a sad, but it was also very powerful when I lost my father and I was sitting shivering. People just came all day and mo- most of the night, you know, and they didn't stop coming and just sharing stories and episodes and memories. It's just a very, very powerful way of transitioning from one life into a really new life without your loved one. In any case, it's called Shiva. Shiva means seven because it's you do it for a period of seven days of a week. And I turned to him and I said, I don't know, but I just will offer something that may possibly be true. Maybe not. I said, think about it. And if it resonates, it resonates. If it doesn't, you know, scratch it from the files. And he said, what is that? And I said, is it possible that some of us are trained to deal with tragedies by amputating our emotions, by Mm. not failing our emotions. We almost choose between God and our emotions. If you want God, cut out your emotions. If you want your emotions, you're going to have to say goodbye to God. And religious people who have grown up with God and faith in God say, well, I'm not rejecting God. (laughs) It's almost like in that Woody Allen movie, I think Crimes and Misdemeanors, where this niece turns to her very religious uncle who has this long white beard and she turns to him and she says, uncle, if you had to choose between God and truth, which one would you choose? And the uncle says, of course, God. (laughs) And it's, of course, it's Woody Allen's way of describing what religion looks like in the 20th and 21st century. You know, you're choosing between God and truth. So, But they would say, no, I'm not choosing God and truth. I'm choosing between God and my own very human, uh, primitive, finite, small-minded, directionless, and, and petty emotions. I said, you can't do that. You never, ever choose. Make that choice between God versus your emotions. Because if these are your human emotions, they're real. They're authentic. They're part of God's gift to you. They're the way you play out undifferentiated oneness in this world through your emotions. That's all I have. I have my experiences in life. I'm not infinite. I'm not God. I don't have to be God. God, Remember, God wanted a partner. (laughs) Partner means you're going to contribute something to this endeavor, to this enterprise. A partner is not passive. So if faith is all about surrendering your emotions, not feeling, there is a danger that something human shuts down. And when people speak to you, they just feel that there's something human that's missing. 
And therefore, what I would encourage is, you know, be present with all your emotions. Be present, because if this is your emotion, this is your emotion. You know, work with it, embrace it, cherish it, have compassion with it, and you will grow with it. Is this number three? When I interrupted you a long way back, you were you you were talking about getting support from other people and seeing the the uh, the greatness in in the depth, you know, in in the blind spot. Is this number three to be present with all the emotions? As you, I'd ask, I had asked you if you counsel if you counsel people to get rid of the blockages. This sounds like this. I know this to be very very powerful, and so key. Oh my gosh, it's it's. It's very, very key. It's so important. We also need support for it because sometimes it's very scary. Sometimes it's scary. But this is another key element to be able to really be present and not afraid of any emotion. You know, your soul is larger than your pain. Your soul could contain it all. You don't have to cut anything out. You don't have to amputate. You don't have to be afraid of it. You can really be present with it. and You can bring it to the conversation. You could bring it to the fore. You could bring it into the relationship with yourself, with your close people, and with your God. You know, bring it into the relationship. The, 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 the last point I wanted to make earlier, I was thinking about something else, which is I would always encourage people to be able to define their life as a story of blessing, which comes when I get involved in actual positive endeavors. So wherever I am in the world, it's important to be able to dedicate some time of my life to be an ambassador of love and light and hope. Whatever that means for you, to get involved in some project, to create an organization, a movement, a website, to become, you know, get involved in volunteer work, to get involved in some form of work that is about love and kindness and giving and generosity and benevolence, because ultimately, ultimately, actions of positivity have a very, very powerful impact on our heart, on our soul, on our psyche. They create new neural pathways. You know, when we engage in certain habits for 60 times and more, we literally create new opportunities in our brains, new opportunities of how we think about things. So that would just be another element. Get accustomed to engaging in rituals and habits that are consistent, that are positive, that are loving, that are kind. They will have a very powerful impact. Even if your heart, you don't feel you're fully and emotionally ready for it. Right. Right. That was just another component that I would add to this conversation. But uh, talking about uh, amputating emotions, this is such an important thing. People have to trust the fact that every emotion that I'm experiencing is part of my blessed journey. It's not part of my curse. Even if it's a very difficult emotion, it's there to teach me something. It's an alarm clock. <laughs> We don't like alarm clocks, you know. <laughs> if I'm sleeping, I really don't like my alarm clock to ring. But the alarm clock is not a curse. The alarm clock is there to wake me up. It's to make me alert. We have a lot of alarm clocks, and they can make us alert and make us conscious and aware of things so that we don't sleep through life. <laughs> so there's some way you started out more or less this conversation by talking about the core. It really struck me when you said it, the core trauma that, that happens as we're initiated into living, into life and birth, which is separation. 
And yeah. you also talked about how the nature of the, of the universe is that there's a cover or a blockage over reality, which is indivisible, undifferentiated oneness. And um, definitely that has the overtone and the color. In, uh, creation has the, it, according to mystical Torah, has the undertone, I should say, of divine love and divine goodness of bringing something new into being through, and through that partnership, you know, revealing the reality. So I'm just wondering... I don't, almost don't even know how to frame the question, but I'm just wondering if this, these experiences, if it makes sense that these experiences of the, of the traumatized emotions are somehow homeopathically or, um, or through consciousness or through contrast are showing us what isn't working about the blockages so that we go, it always drives us deeper. It always, if we allow it to, it always brings up different dimensions of awareness that we didn't at least speaking for myself that i didn't know existed very which- profound very profound question very profound so let me say two points number one all traumas can be traced back to the primal trauma and that's the trauma of existence or to put it differently even the person that theoretical person who may live in new zealand i don't know who grew up in the most functional, perfect, loving, nurturing home, the person who grew up seeing and safe and secure and soothed, you know, the four S's of of Dr. Siegel, and the person who grew up in an (laughs) ambiance of absolute attachment, so there's no attachment disorder, etc. That most sensitive, wonderful spiritual person still has to face the ultimate trauma. It's the trauma of existence. It's a trauma of a soul that is one with infinite divinity descending and experiencing itself as lonely, broken, fragmented, detached, living in a universe that eclipses that true reality. That is a very deep trauma. And I want to tell you something. Sometimes we look at children who ostensibly are in functional homes and functional schools, and yet they're experiencing a pain. And nobody knows why. Like, what? What happened? Nobody abused them. They're being fed. They're being nurtured. Mommy is good. Tati is good. They're good, good people. Sometimes they are too spiritually sensitive and they are experiencing the trauma of separateness, the separateness between people, the separateness between nations, between cultures, the wars and the violence that exist on our planet, the fact that there's so much distrust. That's what they're experiencing. And when we can remember that, we must remember that all the traumas we face in our individual lives ultimately stem from that one. And when we can trace it back to the core and we realize this is our job in the world. Our job in the world is to face this trauma and to look at the darkness and say, and I know that above the dark clouds, the sun is shining. Above this trauma and within this trauma, there is oneness. And when I work it through, I transform the darkness into light. I bring healing not only to me, but vertically and horizontally to the planet and vertically even to the generations that preceded me. Because in epigenetics, we know that our genes carry the trauma right. of all of our ancestors. That's, that's so we bring our kids. healing retroactively. No, we bring healing retroactively yeah. to our grandparents and great-grandparents and so on and so forth. Because our genes carry the trauma, our genes also carry the resilience and the wisdom and the love and the compassion and the good deeds and the faith and so forth. But there's also another very important point to be made about all of this. From the perspective of Jewish mysticism, 
the entire universe comes from undifferentiated oneness. And yet creation was the act of differentiation, diversity, identity. I am I, you are you. Every creature has its space, its unique chemistry, every organism, its unique DNA sequence, etc. And that's what makes me, me, and it makes you, you. And every one of us has our functionality and our individual unique streaks that differentiate us one from another. What allows us to go back to our true nature? Often, it's the trauma that compels us to go out of our individual story and go back to a place of simplicity and oneness, which is the only way we can truly liberate ourselves. Our traumas often force us to let go of every last vestige of ego, every last vestige of vanity, and allow ourselves to melt away in the ecstasy of oneness. So paradoxically, it's sometimes our pain that really compel us to grow to places and touch truths that we could have never touched without it. Because when I'm in my comfort zone and my comfort zone is working for me, I could just remain complacent. (laughs) It's when my comfort zone is shaken and I suddenly realize how limiting my stories about myself are. And then I realize that all of creation is a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and others. And I'm forced to completely go out out of the story and go back to a place of undifferentiated oneness so that a much deeper truth emerges. And that's where our pain itself becomes the foundation of our redemptive consciousness and our healing. It's so true, and it's and others also, and it's so complex. And just really quickly want to share after I lost a younger brother in 2002, you know, I lost a child, a, a six month older years before that. And that was in, in 91, I think 1991, right? Wow. I remember. Yes. yes. I remember yes. I was, I was a, I was a student in, in a rabbinical college. And I remember that story when you lost your child. Yeah, it was early. It was before it became like, <laughs> unfortunately there are more and more, you know, there've been a lot more tragedies since then, but it was, it was much less common at the time. Anyway, after my brother passed away, like there, when my when my baby passed away, I, I happened to be, you know, around the time when Lubavitch Rebbe was urging us, you know, to do what we could to, to bring this redemptive healing to the world. And I just felt like the soul was pushing me and I got very activated in ways that were way beyond my identity. Then when my brother passed away in 2002, a younger brother, I kind of I think I went into PTSD and I remember every day I was sitting at my desk, just like, why, what the heck? And I, it t- I was able to move less and less, you know, I just was sitting there day after day for about two or three months. And, and at one day I just remember having this sudden visual. It doesn't even make sense, but it changed everything for me. It was like, I saw suddenly saw myself where I lived in Morristown, New Jersey, and there was a lake there. And I saw myself in the lake as a duck from nowhere, from nowhere. And I was swimming and I was looking and it was cold. It was winter and it was icy and all the houses kind of, everything seemed kind of gray. I was looking around and then all of a sudden my attention was drawn down to the, underneath the water, my little round duck body and my little duck feet paddling there. And it does not make any sense logically, but it was like, it showed me, I felt 
with my whole being that this is a world of peace, that underneath this, every, that down there everything is good and everything is connected. It was like a revelation. And it allowed me to get up from that chair and move forward into the work that I do now. And it was one of the first, it was really the first catalyst for that. And so I, I think everything you're saying is so utterly profound and so important. And it's like, there's something about the human being that, you know, we're created in the image of divine, the divine, yet you're, we're human. We have this reality to us that nothing else has because we have that free choice. We have that divine, you know, essence. And yet we, we experience the, the, the vicissitudes and the, the pains as well as the joys, but the pains and the travails of humanity, what they call the human condition in such an intense way. And somehow the blend of the two being more aware and more compassionate and more allowing of that, that human self making the space for it, bringing it up to heaven, screaming or crying in pain as who could not do, you know, who wouldn't do that? You know, as much as is needed, being witnessed, learning to to hate the, to, to, to offer goodness instead of that darkness. And at the same time, it seems to have the effect if it's used correctly. And I don't wish it on anyone. We're moving toward a world where death, the Torah promises, death will be removed. Suffering will be removed. That's what redemption really is. But I just want to say that somehow the, the work that you're talking about and the allowing that you're talking about and the self-compassion that you're talking about allow for the revelation of that deeper realness of us, which ultimately at its core is God. And the revelation of that in turn heals all potential for suffering because suffering comes from that core trauma of separation, right? Does that make sense to you? This is how I'm hearing it all, you know, putting together. Yeah, there's us, uh, what come to as you were talking you know, two really majestic, majestic teachings from, from Jewish spirituality come to mind. Number one, there is in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, that dream of Jacob as he's going, he's leaving his parents, someone going to build the first Jewish family, which would turn into the Jewish nation. He dreams of a ladder that's standing on the ground. Sulam There's a ladder standing etched on the ground and the top of the ladder reaches heaven. And the rungs of the ladder are basically the link between heaven and earth. And the Hebrew Bible is using that as an illustration of what the ultimate calling of a human being is. We are ladders. And that ladder on one side is etched on the ground. We're earthy. We're earthly. (laughs) We're concrete. We're mundane. We are physical. We're sometimes very brute. (laughs) Some of us more than others. (laughs) And that ladder has rungs, but that very same ladder, its top reaches heaven. So we are the interlacing link between heaven and earth. But those rungs climb through all of the layers of reality Mm. so that the human soul is actually like a violin that experiences the vibration of every dimension of reality and of every creature on earth. Maimonides writes that the human being is made up of every dimension of the planet and every dimension of the cosmos. So our hearts are actually like musical instruments that experience the vibrations of literally every dimension. And that's why there is so much confusion and there are so many vicissitudes and there are so many fluctuations, there are so many experiences. But instead of allowing that to become a source of confusion, and fragmentation and splintering of self, we actually have to see it as an invitation to be able to take all of those vibrations and turn it back into a singular symphony. 
So don't get afraid of any vibration. Every moment of the day, there'll be a different vibration. Just be open to the experience. And the second major beautiful idea in Jewish mysticism is, why is it that naturally, instinctively, we love the ocean? I think most of us, you know, you stand at the ocean and there's just this sense of, of awe and mystery and love and something about it. And also, you stand in front of tall mountains, tall mountains, and there's a beautiful interpretation about it. The oceans and the mountains remind us of who we are. We're really mm-hmm. infinite. You know, the ocean, it doesn't end, doesn't look like it's ever going to end from our vantage point. It just reminds you of who you are. And that mountain itself, it reminds you of who you are. And when we have those reminders of who we are, it helps us live a life that is aligned with who we are. Wow, it's stunning. And it sounds like this violin image is so compelling. And it seems like... yeah. We're saying the string that. theory, the ultimate string theory. <laughs> and we, it sounds like we each contain everything, that we each contain with us everything. Everything, everybody. each and every one of us. There's a classic Jewish mystical work called Lakute Torah by the founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi. He passed away 1812 in Ukraine. And he writes, he writes, the reason a person can repair the world is because everything that exists in the world is reflected and mirrored and vibrates within every person's psyche. So there's a piece of the world inside of me. You know, when I'm watching, I live in Rockland County, and there's beautiful birds in my backyard. There's a forest, and there's a red and blue bird that come visit our trees every evening before sunset. And I'm watching the red bird. (laughs) I'm watching the red bird. You know, the other day during Corona, we stayed home. So I wasn't going to the synagogue. So I would pray in the morning. So Saturday morning, I would sit with my wife and we would study texts of Jewish spirituality. And there was this bird that kept on coming every few minutes. I'm like, (laughs) and almost like he was giving this, or she was giving this message. And my wife said, yeah, yeah, the bird is reminding you that you have to pray. You did not do your morning service yet. <laughs> so, you know, I told it to my teenage son, and he said, sure, you know, dream on that, Tati. So I don't know what the bird was saying, but there was something so compelling about what she, her interpretation because it's true. There, there is a symbiotic relationship that we have with every creature on the planet. When you're watching a worm, or you're watching a caterpillar, or you're watching a squirrel, or a groundhog, or I often watch the deer here. I'm not watching someone or something that is separate from me. No. The job of the human being is to reveal the oneness. We are all interconnected. Just like there's a food chain and there's a food web, there is an ecosystem, and the balance is perfect. And the balance is essential. Every one of us is a giver and every one of us is a taker. Every creature contributes and every creature receives. We all need each other on one level or another. And it's the job of the human being who has the consciousness of oneness to be able to reveal that synchronization and that unity within humanity and within the entire planet and within the entire universe. Wow. Okay, this leads me to the real core question that I wanted to bring up, that I want to bring up in this amazing interview. It's really hard not to go down all of these or go through all of these doors that you've opened up, like just the light is just shining, you know, calling. But um, 
we talked before the call about the idea of what I what I'm starting to call rebranding God. And I want to say that, you know, a lot of people, as I'm sure you know better than many people, a lot of people are have a visceral aversion to the word God. They were brought up with a sense of being judged and not uh, not good enough, and sometimes in very severe ways, sometimes with punishments and beatings, at least with threats and fear. And even in very beautiful households that are very connected to religion and even within the Torah tradition, not the mystical Torah, which is revealing this oneness, which you know only started to be really revealed in bigger ways, you know, two, three hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, and now much, much more than ever because of the times. But anyway, we're still wed. I feel, I feel very much, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this as a statement, it's really a question. I feel very much that we are being invited, and even more strongly than invited, we are being begged to step into a new relationship with God. There, the old relationship with God was trauma-based. We're all traumatized by God. Anybody who believes in God is deeply traumatized by God. And there is no way to move into a relationship of love and oneness, which is the promised and, and emerging you know, evolutionary destiny that we're moving toward. The awakening, as some people say, there's no way to do that from that traumatized relationship. Like you said, people either turn their back or check out or whatever. So people either walk away from a relationship or redefine God to fit their own you know, thoughts, which God is way beyond our thoughts. You can't create a universe and be beyond that if you're stuck in my mind um, and limited by that. So anyway, how do we get, it, it feels very much that we're being urged, like I said, to move to a new relationship. And the last thing I wanna say about that, and then I'm turning it over to you is, and I don't say this in public. I've, I've said it a couple of times in smaller venues in public, but I people are always talking about like asking God for forgiveness and asking other people for forgiveness, and you know that's that's important when it's when it's appropriate and forgiving ourselves really important. But on a much deeper level, it feels like we cannot move into a new relationship with God if we can't forgive God. And I'm saying this to you because I know you can handle <laughs> and do something with it, but. Forgiveness means to let the past be in the past. You're not afraid that I'm going to stone you through the Zoom, huh? No, I'm not. I know too much about you. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) No, but this is, I really, I don't know if you you relate to what I'm saying. So if you don't, then feel free to, you know, tweak it, bash it, whatever. But to me, it seems like I thought thought this over front, back, underneath, you know, sides. I cannot see anything else. You cannot allow, you know, you can't allow someone to treat you in a different way. You can't see a different way if you can't let go of all of the hurt in some way. Not that it doesn't have to still be worked out. But if you're holding, let's say, in a relationship, someone hurt you, a spouse, they betrayed you, whatever, if you can't believe that they want to be different now and that they realize and see your hurt and that they want to heal it now, you can't allow that to happen. And we're talking about the one isness, you know, source, essence, being of the whole universe. So take it away. <laughs> okay. So Shifra, you ask a wonderful question, and it's not just a wonderful question, it is a vital question. Because I would say that so many in our generation experience what I call DT, divine trauma. (laughs) Divine trauma is basically trauma revolving God, revolving around God. And it comes from the fact that many of us have grown up and consciously or unconsciously, deliberately or non-deliberately, the way God is experienced by us is in a very, very negative and toxic way. 
I can't tell you how many countless emails mm-hmm. I've received from people, letters, personal encounters with people from all different groups of life. And the common denominator is that they perceive God in a very, very negative way. God is out to get me. God is out to crush me. God is out to kill me, to destroy me. And their life story are basically a confirmation of that inner belief. And, you know, I often tell people in my lectures, you know, I ask them, I want to know what is the first instinctive image that you experience in your brain and in your heart when the word God is mentioned. I'm not talking about the images that come later after meditation and reflection and a cerebral long analytical process. I'm talking about that moment, the moment you hear the word, what image you know, is planted in your brain that very moment before you have a chance to judge it and dismiss it. Right. And very often people will describe a very sinister image. You know, black, scary, dark eyes steering you down, dark clouds. Somebody who's really, really always looking down your back and searching through your closet to try to find your guilt or many other similar depictions. And what that means is that instinctively, our first impulsive reaction is one of negativity. And we have to work that through. Because in order to embrace the consciousness of oneness, the consciousness of love, the consciousness that unites us all that we spoke about it earlier, we really cannot judge ourselves or judge these responses because these reactions are really part of our coping mechanism. You know, our brain creates files for everything, including for God. And these are the files we have created to know what to expect, to know how to position ourselves vis-a-vis God. But these relationships and these attitudes must be revisited by us as we all mature and try to enhance our spiritual and emotional posture in a healthy, liberated, emancipated, inclusive, and deeply emotional and visceral relationship with God that enhances, that enriches, that embraces, and empowers us rather than weakens us. A so love relationship. But, okay, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm so, so sorry to interrupt your flow. But no just, problem. I just, I, it's also religious upbringing, you know, there's a constant emphasis on, you know, we're not good enough. We have we yes. we failed. We haven't mar- you know yeah. met the mark. We have to repent. We have to ask for forgiveness. No wonder these yeah. things are happening. That's one thing I want to say. And I'll, I'll let you go and go go forward in a second. Yeah. Just what you're saying. You, you're other- not good enough. You're not good enough. You're always guilty. And how Repentance. do we? How, but how? Who authorized anyone? Sorry for the blunt question, but but the, I know that people are going to be thinking this. Who authorized? A, a, a spiritual leader, a rabbi like yourself, or anyone else who's promoting a love relationship with God, who authorized you to change the dynamic? Do you know what I'm saying? If this is the tradition for all these, most religious. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. Uh, yeah, sorry for the interruption, but. it's No, no, no. It's an awesome question. And the truth is, if you read certain texts without context, without the context of real spiritual oneness, indeed, those traditions are more than justified. In other words, what I am saying is not that people who have these feelings are coming from nowhere. No, they have, they have long-standing tradition and rituals 
and certain perspectives and certain literature that really makes them feel this way. Education, like, certain focus, no question, and a lot of religious texts that would affirm this. And in fact, I have to tell you, every time I speak about this, I always get a few emails from people who will say, this is completely new stuff. This is not true. This is all fiction. This is your own liberal pop psychology trying to make yourself popular and making hurt people feel good. But the truth is fire and brimstone. The truth is God is a zealous God. He's a God of vengeance. The truth is every wrong thing you do, you're going to get punished for. The truth is, you know, Dante's furnace, the fires of purgatory are waiting to consume your soul and consume your body. And that is the truth. That is the reality. And my response is, I'm not judgmental and I have compassion. And I know where you got this information from. I know the texts very, very well. I know the literature very well. I know this style of education. But I want to tell you that this is ultimately a distortion of the entire foundation of all spiritual growth. Because let's think about this for a moment. Are you going to tell me from a Jewish perspective that God, infinity, had nothing better to do with his life than conceive a universe, right? Create struggle, create challenge, create lots of opportunities for people to fail and stumble. Lots of opportunities for trauma. <laughs> and who, who of us is not traumatized? Only to tell you, and by the way, when you fail, I'm here to ignite the fires of hell to the point that you will remember who's the boss. I mean... This this conception is is, is so beyond absurd. It's almost funny if it wasn't sad. Uh, It's almost funny if it wasn't sad and if it wasn't that so many religious leaders of every tradition almost throughout the ages have promoted this. Yeah. So this is all in, in, we have a beautiful expression in our spiritual literature called an exile mentality versus a redemptive mentality. In Hebrew, it's called gullus mentality versus gula mentality. There's a mentality where a person is completely estranged. It's a mentality of slavery. You know, in the ancient world of slavery, you whipped your slave into obedience. And the reason you whipped your slave into obedience was because he didn't want to be there. <laughs> and he didn't have a right, and he shouldn't have been there. He should have been freed. So you whipped him into obedience. And we often use religion in the same way. Like God needs to whip you into obedience. But the only reason you have to be whipped into obedience is because there's no relationship. There's no intimacy. There's no oneness. In a deeper spiritual consciousness, it's about organic, holistic harmony. It's about understanding who you are. The deep spiritual masters have taught that God is really not the word to use. I want to tell you that in Kabbalah, the word that's used in lieu of God is ain't self, which means infinite reality, which means the reality of oneness. The term that we use for God in the greatest works of Jewish philosophy and in the Bible itself is yud, hey, vav, hey, which means existence, reality. So somebody tells me, Rabbi Y or Rabbi Jacob said, I don't believe in God. I'm like, okay, good. But here's a question. Do you believe in reality? 
<laughs> of course I believe in reality. So I said, so, so that's our definition of God. God is ultimate reality. We're all part of reality. We're all in reality. Reality is not here to get you. Reality is you. You are reality. Reality is you. The Baal Shem Tov, one of the greatest spiritual masters of Judaism. He lived in the 17th. He was born in 1698. So he lived at the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century. He was known as the founder of the Hasidic movement. One of the profoundest uh, um, movements of Jewish spirituality. And he used to say, God is everything and everything is God. He would say it in Yiddish. God is alts and alts is God. And his point was, we are all God. We are all in God. We are all reality. We are all an aspect of reality. We are in reality. It's not like God exists in heaven. God equals existence. It's not when you say God is big or God is smaller, God is greater, God is wonderful, or God is this or that. It's already, you, I'm already off. Because the moment I'm like, God is something, you missed the point. God is not anything. God is isness. I just made up a word. Isness. I use that, hyphen... that word all the time. Isness. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Okay. I-S hyphen N-E-S-S. God is isness. God is not. The moment you're like, God is feminine. God is masculine. God is compassionate. God is big. God is small. God is great. You're already off target. Because there's now duality. There's God and there's me. God is this and I am this. God is this and you are this. No. The word God, therefore, is very inaccurate. The right word is reality is not something. God is isness. Isness is God. In other words, the very core of reality, the very truth of reality, that's how Judaism defines God. So I tell them, do you believe in reality? Do you believe in existence? The name for God in the Bible, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, Haya, is the essence of existence. And all of us are part of that existence. All of us are an aspect of existence. And existence has dimensions that are completely mysterious and infinite, things we cannot wrap our brains around, plans and visions and dreams that we cannot wrap our brains around. And existence is also, part of existence is also so, so many you know, miracles, the miracle of love and the miracle of birth and the miracle of creation and the miracle of relationships and the miracle of intimacy and the miracle of science and the miracle of discovery and the miracle of the search for truth and the miracle of emotional connection and emotional bonding. So reality is, is so much of what we know and so much more of what we don't know. And the uniqueness is that when we Judaism speaks about God, it's not just as you know, a force of nature as Spinoza's definition of God. And it's not just a God that's transcendent and infinite above nature. It's really a synthesis of the fact that there's no nature outside of God, but there is also God above nature because God is not limited to nature. So God is both within and without feminine and masculine, imminent and transcendent. And also at the core of my heart, extremely personal and intimate it's something I can address in the most personal ways, like I address my best friend. And therefore, when the Torah speaks about you should listen to God, another way of saying it is, can you listen to your deepest, deepest voice? Can you tune in to the ultimate, ultimate truth of reality? When the Torah and the Bible says, if you follow God's ways, you'll be blessed. If you don't follow God's ways, you'll be cursed. It's almost like a geneticist talking to you and saying, let me tell you about your genetic makeup. 
Let me tell you about your DNA. Let me tell you about your chemistry. Let me tell you about your brain. Let me tell you about your blood type. And let me tell you which foods are superfoods, which foods are all right, and which foods are toxic. This geneticist is not trying to mix into your life. He's not trying to destroy your life. He's trying to align your daily diet with your genetic makeup, with your blood type, so that your adrenaline and your energy level is maximized, so your life is actualized. So I don't feel lethargic and heavy and depressed and angry. So when the Torah is a blueprint for life, when it gives us rules, those rules are not about repression. Those rules are about self-actualization. It's aligning your brain with its ultimate, ultimate power, its ultimate calling. Yes, there are certain foods I should not be eating. (laughs) There are certain behaviors I should stay away from, and there are certain behaviors I should engage in. So I think it's so important in our generation to trust people. We don't need to whip anybody into obedience. We don't need to scare people. God is not your enemy. You are divine. You are part of infinite reality. God is about tuning into your ultimate, ultimate, deepest strength, your ultimate reality. And in that reality, in that level of reality, beyond my blockages, beyond my distortions, I want to be the best person because that's who I am. When we can come from that perspective, the entire education and relationship with God is not just sweetened, but it's completely transformed. Right. Wow. It's so it's so profound and so I don't know poignant. Uh, there are a lot of other words for it also. That without this, people either have the choice of of subjugating themselves to constant self judgment and terror, guilt, etc., shame, or to just walk away. And that's neither road is going to take us where we. Right. Where, where we're aimed where we're aimed now, which is this right. transcendence, finding the divine within our own beings and then exactly. the world. That that choice is a very painful choice that many of us make. It's the choice of either submitting. It's the choice of either submitting to uh, to cynicism and mockery, and alienation, and despair, really, because cynicism is really a form of despair. It's like, I won't trust anybody because I was backstabbed last time. Versus versus the a vision which, uh, you know, causes me to submit and surrender and feel mediocre. But there's a much more real, authentic path. Yeah. And that is, you know, you don't have to surrender your individuality and you don't want to go to a place of fear. On the contrary, you want to go to a place of love and compassion and you want to understand that everything you're going through is really a gate to deeper awareness. And the deeper awareness is where your ultimate self and your ultimate values lay and your ultimate values and your deepest yearning is for oneness for attachment, for connection with yourself, with all of the parts of your brain, with all all your brains, all the parts of your brain, with others, with reality, with the planet, with the cosmos, and with the creator of the cosmos. 
the mystical Torah texts talk about this kind of experience, right? We're so, in a certain sense, we're in an evolutionary sense, we're, we're aiming for that. It's not a neutral, this is, yeah. this, I'm stating this, but it's a question, not a neutral experience, but actually a passionate, um, transcendent, joyful, blissful experience of union. Yeah. And you know, and they, and then you know, they t- they call the human, they call what we've been going through all these millennia, this like crazy, insane world of 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 terror and anxiety and worry and suffering and exploitation and domination and resistance and victimhood and uh, tragedy. God forbid, you know, all this we call this the human condition. Like that's just the way it is. But really, this is a metamorphosis, right, into another completely other version of ourselves and that relationship, which will project into a different world. Uh, so how, what what do you see? And I guess I'll, I, I've taken so much time from you, so I'll, I'll end with this question probably. Um, how do you see that that metamorphosis? How would you advise people in general on that metamorphosis? How do you move from that tr- deeply traumatized relationship with God where, where uh, and on what basis, where, where your life has shown you that, you know, it's it makes sense to be afraid and it makes sense to feel like, you know, either you're being victimized or you are causing these horrible things by being a bad. How do you move from that into, you know, an intimate, passionate union with the ultimate isness? How does that happen? Great Great question. The first thing is through awareness and compassion, (laughs) not through getting angry at yourself and judging yourself, because that's part of the old voice, which we have to have compassion for. So don't get angry at yourself. Don't judge yourself. The most powerful tool is observation, awareness. Awareness means that I can watch that relationship going in different directions. Take, take, take it in your own relationships, in your own marriages, or your own friendships, your own partnerships with people. You know, the greatest blessing is not for me to be perfect because I'm not perfect. The greatest blessing I can wish on myself is to always be aware of what's happening. You know, if my wife tells me something and I can observe the triggers and I could see where my brain wants to go and I can make a conscious choice to go somewhere else with compassion. So I don't have to repress or deny or judge or crush what just happened. I can look at it. I can have compassion for it. I could realize where it's coming from. And then I could say, but I'm going to choose to react from a place of confidence and wholeness and inner health and inner resilience. I'm going to make believe I'm not traumatized. (laughs) I'm going to teach my brain that it doesn't have to react like a traumatized little victim. My brain doesn't have to become a crocodile or a lizard coping for, you know, coping to uh, trying to survive. And with compassion, I can then tell my brain I'm going to respond from a place of wholeness as though I was amazingly healthy. And you know what happens? After 60 times, there are new neural pathways in which your trauma is not dominating you. Now, we sometimes need a lot of help and a lot of support. We sometimes need real professionals to help us release our trauma. Sometimes my trauma is paralyzing me and I can't do this on my own. I need certain external uh, methods of people or various substances that can help me. Granted, but the key is always the awareness. And I think this is also true in our spiritual evolution. 
You know, if you're standing to, if you're getting up to pray or sitting down to pray, or you're involved in some type of conversation or religious experience, you know, watch, watch your reactions. And when my reaction is one of me tensing up and becoming uptight and angry and judgmental, just watch it with compassion because then you can make choices. You know, if you're sitting down to your Passover Seder table or your Saturday, your Sabbath table, I'm talking in the religious Jewish tradition or other traditions, and you're finding yourself uptight, angry, critical, judgmental, judgmental towards your children, judgmental towards yourself, judgmental towards your spouse, just be aware of what's happening. And then ask yourself, can I give myself permission to try to experience a vulnerable, visceral experience of intimate connection and love? And when we continuously do this, we will all be surprised, pleasantly surprised by our ability to be able to engage in a delightful, blissful experience rather than one that's dominated by fear, judgment, scorn, and most importantly, dread and fright. So basically, turning the the key of this is turning it, turning inward, tuning inward. Yes, yes, always. Rather always. than outward. With always, yes, yes. Yeah. So, it, is it too okay? Much to you huh? think to say that this is the call of the hour? This work that this is the call of the hour. I I, I think it's one of the great calls of the hour, certainly. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for staying with us so long and for all my of pleasure, the pleasure. My pleasure. That there, it's obvious that there's immense wellsprings full of more, but uh, we want to give you, we want to give everybody here a chance to actually have uh, have some of that more. Thank um, you. So anyway, if you can just let the listeners know, the viewers know what it is that you and your team have prepared for everybody who wants to get to know more about your work. Sure, sure. Those who those who are interested, it would be my uh, my delightful and blissful pleasure to be able to. Uh, engage with you and to be able to become closer to you and be able to uh, enlarge our community of, uh, of mankind and womankind with love and compassion. So number one, I send out almost daily a short WhatsApp clip that helps anchor us in the vision of oneness and the vision of love and compassion. So it's a short clip that may um, help, you as it helps me and it helps many of my uh, friends and students anchor ourselves, you know, in that inner space. So you could sign up for that to receive that via WhatsApp. There's also... Days will change uh, the brain, as you said. Hopefully, yeah, if we (laughs) do it constantly. And the most important thing is to internalize it and to act on it, you know, to internalize it viscerally and to act on it so it doesn't just remain an intellectual idea. If you wish, I can also send you a few videos for beginners that will help initiate you into this deeper consciousness. And finally, I send out a weekly newsletter, a weekly essay that's dedicated to these concepts of applying them and internalizing them, which I'm very happy to send you um, if you want to sign up and we could continue that special relationship. And I think each and every one of us to remember the most important thing, you know, empower yourself. Remember that each and every single one of us is an ambassador. We were not conceived randomly. We were conceived with love. And each of us is part of a global and 
personal mission. Each of us is an ambassador, an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, authenticity, wisdom, and redemptive consciousness. You know, and each and every person that you meet in the supermarket, in the street, in the gas station, in a hospital, in a doctor's office, in the gym, wherever it is, every single person I meet, people I know and people I don't know, I have an opportunity to really become an ambassador of a deeper consciousness. And the effects are incredible beyond our imagination. And thank you for the opportunity. Uh, thank you so much. So to all the listeners, the link to, this, to Rabbi Jacobson's special gift, um, take advantage. It's underneath this video. Take advantage. Thank you. You will not regret it. Um, the priceless information and connections, absolutely free. Thank and, you. Thank you. Okay, and I just want to bless everybody. You know, I want to bless everybody. Ultimately, it boils down to how you see yourself. When I wake up in the morning, I can either look at myself as just, you know, a heap of bones and sinews and cells, which is true. <laughs> and a lot of neurons who are fire, firing away and competing for my attention. And that's one way of looking at yourself. But there's another way, you know. I think when you wake up in the morning, when I wake up in the morning, you really look at yourself and say, I'm an ambassador of God. My soul was sent down here. And whatever happens to me today is part of that journey. It's part of that mission. It's not a mistake. Whether I get stuck in traffic or my plane gets canceled, you know, whether I get a ticket or I get a bill that's uncomfortable, small things or big things, random things, intentional things, it's all part of an opportunity and a mission. I was sent here to really be an ambassador of light and healing and love. And I want to seize those opportunities every single day. Thank you. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much. God bless you all. Thank you for the honor. Bye-bye. Bye. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.